All right, so we are in Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. So please turn in your Bibles with me there. And I'm titling this evening's message, Unnecessary Separation. We've gone through, um, let's see, the last couple Wednesdays, we, we kind of doubled up on some chapters. Um, two Wednesdays ago, we were starting Numbers, and now we're in uh, Numbers chapter 5. So we will only be covering that chapter this evening. Uh, next week, we will be going over chapter 6, which deals with the Nazarite vow, uh, which um, we know several people in the Bible had taken that vow, and we'll learn exactly what that is next week. But this evening, a necessary separation, Numbers chapter 5. Um, we need to understand that God did not design and form us with the intention of us experiencing disease in body, mind, and soul. That's not how he originally designed us. That's not what he created us to experience. That came as a result of sin. As it entered into humanity from the first man, that is Adam, and as he sinned, sin came into humanity, and therefore we have inherited um, sin in our own lives. And um, as a result of sin, but just because it's a part of humanity today doesn't mean that we don't respond to it in the right manner. In other words, sometimes we hear in our day and age how it is that um, our upbringing or um, what our father did, what our mother did, grandfather, you know, our, you know, it, it doesn't matter. We, we always have a way of blaming it on someone else as to why it is that we are the way we are today. Well, God really doesn't make provision for that in, in the, his word. Um, what he says is that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And so it's for that reason that with this new man in Christ Jesus, we have the power over all of those things um, to be more than victorious in Christ, um, to um, be completely new creatures, as the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Disease, as we'll see even this evening, we learned in Leviticus, this evening we have um, the command to follow through with the initial command that God gave in Leviticus um, to quarantine such a person. We'll see how that happens with the leprous person. Now, leprosy is applied to many skin diseases. And so we can look at leprosy, and it's just not one specific skin disease, but it's, it's actually many. And the priests were commanded, they were given the responsibility to inspect the people who may have leprosy and determine whether they did or not. We covered that, by the way, in the book of Leviticus. But disease is logically quarantined so that the person doesn't spread that disease to others. And there's a way in which disease is dealt with. So a person is restored and reconciled. We know how a person can be ceremonially uh, or go through a ceremonial cleansing and be brought back into um, a restored relationship in society. So specifically, as we see in the Word of God here, Leviticus and, and now here in Numbers, how they can come back into um, the mix, you could say, into society with the Israelites specifically. Now, there is a necessary separation from disease, just as there must be a separation from what leprosy represents in the Bible. And that is sin, like leaven with dough, a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. We know as far as leprosy is concerned, as it is applied to sin, just a little bit can go throughout a whole body and really infect the body to the point to where it can even bring death in so many different ways. And so there has to be, there must be the separation uh, from sin to make sure it doesn't spread and affect others. In fact, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the, to the Corinthians, he says, hey, listen, I don't commend you for you allowing sin and specifically sexual sin to be among you. In fact, that is to be um, taken out uh, of the body. It, it's not to, you're not to tolerate it. And so that wasn't something for even the Corinthians to be commended with. Sin needs to be dealt with um, very quickly. Uh, but there is a way in which uh, it is to be addressed, a way in which it needs to be removed. 
And uh, that is what we'll be looking at this evening. We have the issue of skin diseases, confession and restitution this evening for committing a sin of breaking faith with the Lord, as we'll see, and what to do if there's suspicion of cheating within a marriage. So we'll see all of those things. So again, I'm reminded of, of the fact that as we go through, through the Word of God, we, we cover all kinds of different subjects. From faithfulness to, to, uh, to others, you know, and, and being restored to others, to um, situations within marriage and how to deal with them, and all kinds of different things were co- are covered within the context of the Word of God. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We're, uh, we're looking at disease here as it pertains to uh, the health of people, and uh, specifically the body of, of uh, God's children, the Israelites, but we can also liken that again to um, sin. So let's pray, and then we'll get into Numbers chapter 5. Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for this evening, this time that you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with each and every one of us, Father. I pray that your Spirit, Father, would give us understanding of your Word, that you would move mightily within the, the hearts of each and every person here. And Lord, you would do a special work. That you would help us to understand, to apply, and to walk out our relationship with you in, in such a way, Lord, that you are honored and glorified. And so we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's first take a look at God's command of separation. Numbers chapter 5, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge into everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So we see how it is that the Lord had given the command, and that is exactly what the Israelites were doing. They were following through with God's initial command, like I said, back in Leviticus, and now we see it followed through with in the book of Numbers. Now, this is God's command. Keep in mind that it says here, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, It was God who commanded that such a separation be made between a person who has a skin disease, as we see here, leprosy, and the population of the people. And here's the reason, and it's stated very clearly in in, uh, verse 3, that they may not defile their camp, in the midst of which I, that is God speaking, dwell. It's a a soiling with sin, you could say, as far as spiritually speaking is concerned. But at the same time, it's a camp that should remain pure in all aspects. And so again, that's why we need to draw the parallel. We need to understand how it is that leprosy is something that illustrates sin. And it's dealt with in a way that is appropriate and applicable to the holiness and the purity of the Lord and His presence being in the camp. Now keep in mind that God was preparing the people again to enter the promised land and victoriously occupy it. It wasn't that He just wanted them, hey, here's the land, do whatever you want to do. No, He was preparing all of His people to go into the land in a manner in which they not only successfully entered, but victoriously lived in it. This would require engaging the enemy, remaining acutely aware of dangers, and being clear about hearing the voice of God and following through with His commands. All of those things. God had clearly given this command to separate those with leprous disease to be put out of the camp, and if reintroduced, it would be because they have been deemed clean by the priest's and gone through that ceremonial washing, that ceremonial cleansing, as we covered in Leviticus chapter 13 and 15. These skin diseases and contact with the dead is a reminder that these are the effects of sin. Disease and death. Again, I'm, I, I think about um, situations uh, where I meet with 
um, patients and family members. And they have all of these questions as far as, you know, why is it that my loved one is having to go through this? Or why is it that my loved one has now died? And oftentimes what what I tell them is that, what I told you at the very beginning is, the Lord didn't design us this way. And I'm given a special opportunity. I really am. I'm really grateful to the Lord for the opportunity that He has given me to, to go and minister to people within the hospital. It, it is a, a, a special privilege that people <clears throat> really welcome me into a, a sacred place with them. And they allow me the opportunity to talk to them about these things. And I remind them, I, 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 at least, or I tell them, you know, the Lord, again, did not did not initially design us this way, but sin did enter. These are the effects of sin. It, and it's death and disease. And this is the very thing that Israel must separate from in order to advance victoriously in the promised land. No one was excluded from this command. If you notice here, it's addressing men and women. It doesn't matter who you are. This is, this is applicable to you. Anyone with a skin disease or making contact with the dead were to be put out from the camp and made or deemed because they were ceremonially unclean, just as God had commanded. Now, we've said this before, that the promised land represents the abundant life in Christ. For this reason, we need to see this in, proper, in the proper light. God is preparing again His people to live in the promised land. And this requires something that is very difficult for us to like, fully sometimes embrace. God says, be holy for I am holy. So something that is a standard, is the standard of God, is to remain pure. Even though we can't be perfect, we, won't, we'll, we will never be perfect this side of heaven. It is something, though, we, that we are to pursue, that we are to desire, that we are to make every attempt to live lives that are righteous before God, that we are in right standing before Him. So He's preparing His people to live in the promised land, and it requires purity. And here's where the challenge comes, and that is the application of God's commands. Now, you think the people who had leprosy chose to be leprous? Absolutely not, right? They didn't choose to be leprous. But they were. We don't choose our sin nature. It's just the way we were born. And that's the cause, of course. We can go back to the Garden of Eden, and as I had said earlier, it was Adam who sinned in the garden, and it was because of him that we now today enjoy the nature of sin. And it is for that reason that we have the second Adam, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died for our sake, died and three days later rose from the grave. We inherited this from Adam, you could say, this sin nature. But we are required to respond to this reality. Just as the Israelites were commanded to and expected to respond to leprosy then. Because God dwells amongst his people, sin and its effects cannot also dwell amongst his people. It just must, it shouldn't be. It must be separated. It must be removed. God isn't so much interested, by the way, in the outward individual acts of sin as he is in the very nature of man that results in the acts of sin. Sometimes we get really busy, and I think I, I've said this, uh, I said this recently, but sometimes we're so busy just trying to change ourselves outwardly when God is not looking at, at the outward appearance that, that man sees, but really the inward heart, the heart that is, that is within us. That's what needs to really change. Once the heart changes, oh, everything else follows. 
Why? Because you desire. You have this desire to please the Lord. And therefore, it's not a burden, but a joy. It's not enough to change behavior because the nature of a person still remains and is always there for the person that is, remains in sin. The desire is to return back to which, what they uh, naturally are inclined to do. It's all because of their nature. And that's why we as uh, Christians, understanding how it is that God changed the heart in, in Christ, that that's what we're looking for in other people. As we introduce them to Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, how it is that as I've experienced a new heart, if I, as I've experienced a new life in Christ, so someone else can as well. And so we introduce them to Christ. They are new creations in Him. And everything starts to change. The sin nature in Adam will always go back to sin. But a person who has been crucified in Christ is dead to the old man and alive as a new man in Christ. A person cannot expect to live in the abundance of Christ if they're not dead to the old nature of sin and its effects and power. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In fact, hold your finger there in Numbers. And let's turn back to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with Him in a death like His. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Free from the power of sin, the Christian is no longer bound to it. Although we may sin, and that is the reality of life, that we do sin, but we are not bound. It no longer has the power it once had over us. Now, as we go back to Numbers chapter 5, we continue. Again, we're reminded that God is holy. He dwells among us. And if God dwells among his people, then sin should be placed outside of the camp. And in Christ, it is possible for us to do just that very thing. And it has to take place. God's command of separation, and then we have God's command of restitution and restoration. Let's continue. Verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of these of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. 
Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. So someone wrongs someone else. He's required to make things right. There's restitution that is required. It's not enough to just say, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I damaged. Whatever, you can go on. Well, that's fine. You can say that. But God requires restitution. He required that for the Israelites, for his people. What's required? Oh, well, you pay back. You make sure that that's taken care of plus another 20%. I I was thinking about that. It seems to be right, wouldn't it be? I mean, the Lord says that, hey, listen, if you cause someone anguish, if you, like, it's just they had to go out of their way now to take care of this, not only should it be right for you to pay him back, but here's 20% more just to make things right. Now, Leviticus 5 covered theft and how it is that restitution was commanded, sinning against another person, or even withholding from God what belongs to him. Now God is commanding the Israelites to follow through again with this command. It was at the moment that the person realized their guilt that, number one, the first thing that needed to be done by that person that realized that they were guilty of this is confession. Confession is simply agreeing with God. I I agree with you. I fell short. I confess and I agree that I did this or I didn't do that. Secondly, restitution is required, plus that 20%. And verse 8 addresses the realization of guilt. If the person who had been offended had died, so what do you do then? Oh, well... You know, I've realized my guilt, but they have died, and so what am I to do? You know, who am I going to give this restitution to plus the 20%? Well, if they have a next of kin, then that's who you take care of. And that's that's how you take care of it. If there is no next of kin, then the Lord made it very clear. There's this flow chart that God set up here. I was reminded of um, back in high school in data processing, now there is these these, uh, these charts, these flow charts, if then, if this is met, then you go here and it goes on and on until you actually make something work, like a Coke machine. But this is what God has before us, this flow chart. Listen, you're not, this is really important and we, we, we can't miss the point of what God is teaching, what he's commanding here for the, pe- pe- for the person who has offended and the person who has been offended. Because this whole command here is implying that payment of restitution, although important for the one receiving, it may be even more important, and I believe it is, for the one guilty of sin and giving it, providing this restitution. Because if there's no next of kin, then payment of restitution was still required to be made to the Lord. And that's what we read there. So really, what's important here? Was it for the person who had been offended or for the person who had offended? And I would have to say that it's more important, this, this command is important for the person who had offended someone else. Because it's not the person who's been offended, but the one who is guilty of offense that is in need of restoration. I thought about the fact that God's been offended by our sin. But our restoration was not for his benefit, but for ours. God is still God. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're really the ones that needed to be restored. That's why we come to him and we ask for forgiveness. There is this shedding of blood that we read as we went through this command here. There's the ram of atonement that was addressed. And thus, with this sacrifice, the sin was covered. But what comes after this atonement 
is very special because it doesn't stop there. There's confession that is made, restitution that has been paid, atonement has been satisfied, and now fellowship with the Lord is enjoyed. It's, it's pretty amazing how all of those things, if we think about our own lives, how it's very necessary for us to, to go through those things to, as we become aware of our sin, that we are to confess those sins to the Lord. And He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we get to enjoy once again that right relationship with Him and fellowship. That's what He desires. That's the whole point of this. Verses 9 and 10 point to fellowship offerings. Verse 9 says, And every contribution of all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. These are fellowship offerings. That's what they are. The whole reason for this command is that the children of God would be restored in their relationship with him. And would be able to, once again, enjoy fellowship with God. This means that remaining in sin, if you think about it, remaining in sin is a breaking of fellowship with God. We, don't, we can't have that intimacy with Him. Have you ever been stubborn and like remained in your sin? <laughs> you know, you're like, I, I don't want to confess that. And it just festers. It gets to the point to where you realize that you're, you're just not right with the Lord. And as we humble ourselves before Him and we do ask for, her, for, for His forgiveness, agreeing that we have indeed sinned against Him, it's amazing how it is that that burden is lifted as we come clean to Him and we confess and we repent of our sin and then we enjoy that, that fellowship with Him once again. Because remaining in our sin, remaining in our pride, isn't what God desires. He didn't desire it then. He doesn't desire it today. What He desires is confession and repentance. Atonement has been taken care of. Therefore, fellowship with Him is restored and enjoyed. Now, verses, we kind of shift gears a little bit here. Verses 11 through 15 uh, begin... Um, to address the suspicion of infidelity. So let's read that. Verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no, no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. For it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. So, what if a husband is suspicious of his wife that he's thinking, maybe I just have this sneaky feeling, the suspicion that my wife's been with someone else. The spirit of jealousy, as we see it addressed here, describes such a state of mind. But what I first want to do is I want to establish whether this is, this is right or not. I mean, and I say it, of course, knowing that it is right, it is the Word of God, but, but I want to work this out a little bit more. Today, we have too many, you could say, loose marriages in which spouses seem to think that the other is free to come and go without having the other experience any sort of jealousy toward the other. Like as if that was a bad thing. Jealousy of a relationship that should only be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And the question is, is that right? Or is that really setting up your marriage for failure? I would say it's the latter. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband 
to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the, to the Corinthians. And this divine jealousy is that the people in Corinth, the church, would remain in a pure relationship with the groom, Jesus Christ. Paul has this divine jealousy of not allowing another relationship to take the place of the one that the church is devoted and ought to keep and abide in, to Christ alone. Psalm chapter 78, verse 58 says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. This was, uh, high places are uh, referred to as, as places of idolatry worship. And so this is a, a, a provocation of the Lord. His anger was kindled. And he was moved to jealousy because his people were worshiping other gods. The Apostle Paul, also in writing to the Corinthians, after having a discussion with them regarding idolatry, said in 1 Corinthians 10.22, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now I have to say, just as it is right for God to be divinely jealous jealous of his people, so it is right for a spouse to be divinely jealous of their spouse. That's actually a good thing. The marital relationship may be the best way to help us understand the difference between sinful jealousy and righteous jealousy. There is a difference. I can be jealous over my relationship with my wife either in a wrong way or in a right way. For example, if I feel resentment or anger just because I see her talking to someone else, that would perhaps be self-centered, be possessive. It might even be considered unreasonable domination. In other words, that would be sinful jealousy. And it would really stem from my own selfishness of perhaps insecurity rather than from my commitment to her and to what is right. But on the other hand, if I see another man trying to alienate my wife's affections and seduce her, what do you think I should do? You're provoking a response, right? And it's a right response. God gave her to me to be my wife. Her body is mine. In fact, the, the Bible says very clearly, hey, this is, this is really good, all right? She belongs to me and I belong to her. And intimacy within the context of marriage is how God designed us. And it is only to be enjoyed within the context of marriage and not outside. It's considered adultery. Before marriage, it's considered fornication. I have the exclusive right to enjoy her fully. And for someone else to assume that right would be a violation of God's holy standards. I'm zealous for the exclusiveness and purity of our marriage. And that is a righteous jealousy. Now God feels the same way about his relationship with his people. It, it is a covenant relationship. In fact, I, I'm reminded of how it is that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, God makes it very clear that the relationship between a husband and a wife is an illustration, a picture of a relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And it's a covenant relationship. There is no selfishness in His jealousy. It is an appropriate expression of His holiness. That's what it is. And it's divine jealousy. It it is not envy. It's not being envious of what the other person has. It's being jealous for the person. That's how God is with us. In fact, we're the apple of his eye, which is amazing. 
He says that of his people. And by the way, we are grafted in as his people in Christ Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? That should be um, something that gives us, encourages us, gives us hope, gives us strength. For two reasons, this is good. What we see here in front of us. What God is commanding for the husband to go through that is suspicious of his wife. Number one, it's to deter wives from adulterous affairs. And secondly, to protect wives from overly zealous, possessive, self-centered, angry, and hard-hearted husbands. Suspicions may be unfounded at times, but if not dealt with rightly, they can still destroy marriages. They're highly suspicious. I've known marriages like this, to where one spouse is highly suspicious of the other, and with it not like unfounded suspicions, it continues on to the point to where the marriage is destroyed. Because there's bitterness and anger that continues to rise up, and it just destroys the marriage. Well, God designed a way for this to be taken care of, once and for all, within His people. I've seen the same signs. They're not unique to any one relationship. I've seen these signs in marriages where adultery is actually in effect. And it's the same thing. The same thing. Become detached and just um, in so many different ways, emotionally, um, there's small conversations on the side that are going on that the woman or the man is being fulfilled in that conversation and you just become detached emotionally, physically, socially, you know, as far as you going out and being a part of life together. So many different things. But it's the same thing. Most of the times, though, spouses just know when the other has given themselves to someone else, emotionally or intimately or both. But there are times, there are times, and this is what we have here, when there is nothing there. And that is why there's a way for this to be resolved. How? Well, there was this barley meal that was brought to the priest without frankincense or oil. Nothing was to accompany this offering for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Nothing sweet, nothing aromatic. It was a bitter offering. Why would it be called a grain offering of remembrance? Bringing iniquity to remembrance. Was it to remind the person of adultery? No, the the, the answer is no. It's not for that reason. But it was to serve as a reminder to the whole community that the nature of adultery is horrible. It's terrible. Just as a false accusation of adultery is. Both of those are terrible. The bitter offering is bitter either way. The accusation or the act, both must be dealt with on the altar before God in His presence. And here was the test. And here's how it should be done. Verse 16 And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying... If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse, and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse, and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Verse 23. We'll go, go on. 
Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away. And the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. So this is the test. This is the ceremony offering that we read there. The wife was to be brought near in the tabernacle before the Lord by the priest. There would be uh, some dust from the floor of the tabernacle some dust, some of that sprinkled into the cup with the water. The woman would hold the grain offering in her hand. And the priest would pronounce an oath over the woman as we read there. These were the words that, they would, that the priest would speak to her. Now, if the woman was innocent of the accusation of adultery, then she would be free from the curse of the bitter water. And it described exactly what would happen. But if the woman was guilty of the accusation of adultery, then she would be under the curse to which she agreed to. Now notice that there was no option. There had to be an agreement by the woman at this point saying, Amen, which means, so be it, I agree. I'm either innocent or I'm guilty. So be it. The water that I drink, may it pronounce a curse on me if I'm guilty. If not, then I won't have any effects whatsoever come upon me. Now, after this pronouncement, this oath over the woman, the priest was to write these words on a scroll and then scrape the dried ink onto or into this cup of water in the dust from the floor of the tabernacle. The priest would then give the, the cup with the dust and the words of the oath to the woman, and the priest would then take the grain offering from the hand of the woman and offer part of it as a wave offering to the Lord as its memorial portion. After this, the woman was to drink the water. If guilty, then the woman would experience pain. Her womb would swell and her womb would be of no use and would thus become a curse among the people. If she was guilty, then in essence her womb would be affected by some internal disease, you could say, and would not be able to have any children whatsoever. But if she was innocent, then there would be no effect on her and she would be able to have children. It was clear from this that God did not want for couples to live in in an ongoing state of jealousy, and they were to deal with it in this manner. And I know, for this, this is, um, this is, this is a command, this is something that the Lord had addressed, and it addresses a husband's jealousy, but this could easily be applied the other way around. Now, as we see this in how it's applied, there had to be some supernatural work of God in order for this to work. Wouldn't you say? I mean, you could pick up some water and some dust and, and um, drink it and you, you may get sick just from what's, what's there. But there had to be something supernatural that, supernatural that took place for this to work. And I tell you, it did. Why? Because I believe God's word to be what it is. And it's very clear. This is what he commanded. This is the way they were to work this out. And it worked exactly how God had intended for it to be worked out. It was actually the Israelites that stopped doing this after their Babylonian captivity. And it was thought that the reason for doing this was because adultery was happening so frequently 
that they were afraid of having the name of the Lord profaned by going through this process so often. If you can imagine, it's just it was a time to where there was just decay and this sin of adultery was happening on a, an unprecedented level within the Israelites. And it hasn't been followed since. For us, God's holiness and the perfection of his word testifies against us. And we are found guilty. And we would be fit to drink the bitter cup that destroys us. Completely. None is righteous, no, not one, is what the Bible tells us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark completely. But you see, we're not required to drink this, drink this cup. Jesus drank this bitter cup in our place. For God's grace is sufficient in Christ toward all who believe. That's, that's the beautiful good news of Jesus Christ. As he come, he's come, he's drank that cup. He went to the cross in our place. Something that we deserved. He took our place for us. We have um, the last three verses here as, as the conclusion. Verse 29 says, This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. The Lord prescribed the manner in which these things were to be resolved. One way or the other. And just as there is no room for the woman to make an attempt to justify her, her adultery, so there is no room for the man to carry on as if she had, when it was proven that she hadn't, according to the standard of the Lord. I was just thinking of how, in a relationship, I, I don't know, I, 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 I couldn't even think of continuing on for very long with my wife if there was a spirit of jealousy within our marriage. That is just a terrible way to live. You know, to be suspicious of one another all the time. And the Lord doesn't desire that. There has to be some kind of reconciliation, some kind of trust that's built within a husband and a wife. You have to honor and love your wife. The Bible tells us very clearly that um, our wives are to respect and honor their husbands. You know, that cannot happen if there's constant suspicion hanging over one another. It just can't, it can't be done. It's impossible. And without doing so, you're dishonoring the Lord. So that's why I was thinking, I, I can't understand how it is that two people can live in this way. Now, um, divorce is not the answer. Because no matter how you put it, God still hates divorce. That's not an option. In fact, I would point to the Word of God and to say that the one thing that God desires above all else is restoration. That there would be a reconciliation between two people who may be in that place. That there would be restoration. It's amazing how it is that God can restore a marriage. I'm living testimony of that. For our marriage was at one point... Now, you could say dead. And so I know firsthand how it is that God can bring two people together like never before. That two people can experience a love for each other that they had never experienced before. And how that love for each other can grow and continue to grow. And it can come to a place to where there is no room for anyone else as it is for your spouse. 
God can restore what the locusts have eaten. And that is the truth. By God's grace, all we have to do as husbands and wives is to surrender our wills to the Lord, asking for forgiveness, asking him to move in our hearts. And I can tell you, I can assure you that that is his desire and he will do that. And it's beautiful when he does. God's desire in this whole matter was for his people to walk in pure purity and in holiness as he walked with them. A person cannot walk uprightly in an abundant life in Christ if he or she has unresolved sin. Things need to be made right and restitution is required to truly resolve matters before the Lord. So that's what we have before us. Let's pray. Father, oh Lord, we thank you that you are faithful, you are trustworthy, you are praiseworthy. Your desire for us is that we would be made whole in Christ Jesus, that we would walk uprightly before you, that we would walk in intimate relationship with you, and that if we do come to that place, which we do from time to time, that we stumble and we fall, that we simply and genuinely are to confess our sins, asking for forgiveness. And your word tells us that you will forgive us of our sins and that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray, Lord, that if there is any unconfessed sin amongst us, Lord, that we would lay that before you And we would, at this moment, ask for your forgiveness. Help us, Lord. Break us before you. May we have humble hearts before you, looking to you for everything that pertains to life and godliness. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.